Hello, listener, and welcome to this special edition of the Hong Kong Football Podcast, an interview with HKFA Technical Director for Arneson. My name, as always, is James Legg, and this Hello. is Tobias Dusser. We met up with Thor on April the 12th. He's been at the HKFA since January after a long coaching career in his native Iceland, being part of the celebrated development setup there, which eventually led to the success of their national team in recent tournaments. This is a pre-recorded episode because me and Toby are away, so we have no idea what's been going on in local football. If something amazing has happened and it sounds weird that we're not addressing it, that's why. Uh, we'll fill you in on all of that in another two weeks' time when we're back in Hong Kong. Before we get to our chat with Thor, I just wanted to remind you guys about the crowdfunding drive for this year's Season Review magazine. Any and all contributions are welcome. And thanks so much to everyone who has contributed already and supported the magazine and supported local football. If you do want to help out, you can follow the link in the episode description to our Fringebacker page or Google Fringebacker Hong Kong Football Podcast. Thank you for your support. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, without any further ado, this is me, James Legg, and Tobias Tusa meeting Thor Arneson. So, Thor, first of all, welcome to Hong Kong. It's been three months. What are your first impressions of the city and the football here? Uh, thank you. Yeah, the city is great. So this is for me to have the mountains and the sea is something that I uh, connect to because I come from an island. Of course, there are more high buildings in Hong Kong, but uh, the culture, the people, and and the nature is something I I think is. Um, Terrific, so I connect a lot uh, to the surroundings and this is just like, this is my home, so just love it here, just love it here. That's good to hear. It's funny because I don't know much about Iceland, but what I do know it seems like the complete opposite of Hong Kong in so many ways, but it's interesting that there are similarities that you note. Yeah, I think the people I know from Hong Kong have gone to Iceland, they say it's very spacious, that's the first thing they say. But um, I think we have many things in common. So people in Iceland are very hardworking. It's the same here. Um, it takes a bit of a time to get to know people in Iceland. It's the same here in Hong Kong. But then you have just different uh, things that you can change, like the weather, of course, totally different. And uh, we have the same problems as with the housing market, but in another way. I mean, it's, it's, it's a global problem. So many of the problems are global that Hong Kong are dealing with and Iceland also. Uh, so for me, it's not a big change. It's not everybody's been talking about all the culture and all that. But if you take the system, maybe on the football system in regards to their very short contracts, and that, of course, affects everybody. So there's a lot of changes in football here, but in, in Iceland it's, it's really stable. The infrastructure is very stable. You have long-term contracts with players and coaches, and that's one of the reasons for the success. Here you have this ever-changing thing. So it's difficult to do a long-term plan because of the changes in the, in the in football world in Hong Kong, so to speak. And so is that one of the key problems that you see that you first encountered with football development in Hong Kong? Yes, I think that of course there, there were a lot of there been a lot of changes inside the FA. So we had Kim was the technical director something like a year ago and then he quit so there was no one doing the job for like nine or ten months. 
Then we had the episode, of course, with Gary White coming in and quitting very early and, and Michael Boris, the youth development coach, leaving really early. So this is something that should not be happening inside a uh, football association because in general there are less changes there and, and than club football. Uh, then there is the club football course where, uh, yeah, it is a big problem for me uh, that the changes are so much that it's difficult. The people who are in control of the clubs are always leaving, coming and coming in and going. Who are you gonna sit down with and and organize the next two or three years? So especially with the youth development, it has to be uh, worked on 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 long term basis. And so you've been brought in. Maybe you've been brought in as a technical director. Maybe you could explain for the listeners exactly what that means, because it's one of those words you hear a lot, but maybe don't fully understand the role. Well, what yeah. does it mean generally, but also what does that mean specifically for, for your role? Well, the technical director job is pretty new in world football, so it, it's a lot of difference between um, different people. So you will have technical directors at club level. Uh, sports director is maybe the... Like in Germany, they started this job before anyone else. And well, the thinking about regards to that was because coaches come and go, that you need somebody, the technical director, or the sports director is someone who is at place. He collects the information that has been happening the last two or three years. The coaches will come and go, but we need somebody to be there uh, to have this helicopter view over the club. So in my role here, I am uh, working besides the head coach of the men's team. All the people inside the technical department, women's team coach, grassroots manager, uh, academy manager, and, and all the staff work under me, so to speak. Although I, I want to work sideways with everybody, that, that's the structure of the inside the FA. So I think this, just no day is the same. I mean, it just you need to fix problems, you need to set up a plan for the next three or four years. So this is, the, just like the football world, it's fast. So you have this job description, but you're always going sideways and, and, and uh, doing things maybe that are not in, in that job description. So it's a lively job, it's fun. And like in most jobs, you have like five or 10% that you don't like, but you have to do. Mm. So, but I'm just really thankful and grateful to be given this opportunity to, to steer the, the philosophy of Hong Kong football. And so what is that philosophy? Of course, that's something we're working at. So three months in and we have another big change coming up. We have six members of the board going out because they've been for a long time. So I have some ideas regard especially to the youth football. Inside the FA we have an very early selection so we have our own academy so we start selecting kids from the age of nine into our academy and i am against that it's always i've always been against that i come from a country which has a really late selection we have had players who have blossomed when they are 19 20 21 so for me to be deciding when kids are nine years old okay you're going to be a national team player we're going to take you into a program and you're, you're not going to be a player so for me, we're losing a lot of talent by doing that. However, I understand why this was done in the beginning. We don't have a infrastructure of many clubs in the, in the country. So this is something I want to change. And uh, thankfully, people inside the FA, 
uh, agree with that. But the clubs, of course, need to be ready to take that over in the future. So we want to do a, let's say, a slow shift from this Hong Kong Football Association Academy to to the clubs and the districts. Um, and what are the chances of that? happening it depends on of course the people coming in I, I don't want to be the guy who just take the decision because I think I know everything because I don't uh, so I won't uh, want everybody to be on board and we've been actually actually discussing a lot of ideas so some of them are in grassroots football because in the end grassroots football is the most important in, in every country I mean all players start somewhere and most of the best players start in the grassroots uh, program and there we are making a change that's pretty easy to do we're gonna we're gonna increase the number of players and the younger state groups from six to eight so we have a few ideas and then of course doesn't need a rocket scientist to see the senior team is getting old almost all the coaches we interviewed spoke about this so this is something that I need to address it's not that I make the decision of course the new coach Mixu is going to make his own decisions but because if this job is, like I said earlier, something on the long term as a technical director is in place for two to five years and head coaches come and go, as you know, it's not going to change, I think, in the football world. This is something I need to address. So we need to rebuild the team in the next two or three years. It doesn't mean we need to take five or six young players and bring them into the team. It's not going to happen like that. But we need to think about the future also. And so a large part of the fact that the national team is has such a relatively old average age is because of large reliance on naturalized Hong Kong players, many of them you know, Spanish-born, Brazilian-born. That's quite a unique situation in international football. Not many countries have that kind of mm-hmm. strategy. How do you feel about it? I mean, this is, this is an international city, Hong Kong. So me as a foreigner, of course, I'm really happy that they want me to help them. However, I am a coach who's always going for homegrown talent. And that means at club level, that can mean if I have a 17 or 18 year old boy playing in the under 19s, which is really promising. And he is at the same level, let's say now in 2019, he's the same level as a player who's 36 years old and is on the bench. I would always take the conversation with the 36-year-old and tell him, sorry, we have a guy who's just, you're similar today, so if I give him a few games, he will be better than you in a really short period. We need to find a solution. So I think this is something I stand for. Regardless of the Hong Kong national team, we're always going to play the best players. doesn't matter if you're 39 years old, doesn't matter if you're born in, in, in Macedonia or Africa or Spain or whatever. So you just pick the best team. However, if you have players who are let's say 35, 38 years old on the bench. And you're not going to be too eager to be in the bench getting a few minutes if you're that old. I think that we need to set our own philosophy that when that happens, okay, it's better to get someone younger in for the future because he will be more happy with getting a few minutes. And also he will, with experience, go past that old player, of course. Uh, so you mentioned the new coach, uh, Miksu Patalainen. Mm-hmm. He's just been announced. Were you involved in the selection process? Yeah, me and Paul did the shortlisting. So we had 170 coaches applying for the job. And we wanted to shortlist based on uh, recent events. So we wanted to have coaches shortlisted who were both connected to Hong Kong and 
other ones who were not connected to Hong Kong. So the board in general could choose. So I was never going to come in uh, because this was like, yeah, one and a half month ago and be the one to take the decision. So I was always going to support the boards, whoever they would choose of the guys who were shortlisted. So yeah, I, I was I was involved in that way and, and got a vote like any of the other seven members who sat at that table. I met Mixu, I think, six or seven years ago. He was the national team coach of Finland. So we were going for like two or three years to some of the same conferences. So. I know him a bit, but I maybe know more about him because I did my UFA Pro license in Scotland and he's been based there basically for, for 30 years or something. So I know more about him, but now we live in the same building, so I'm getting to know him pretty well. It's kind of a new Northern European influence in Hong Kong football, I guess. Or is that yeah. just pure coincidence? Well, I think that if we start with Iceland, because I'm working, I've been working for like something like 20 years at the FA of Iceland, Football is just global. So in Iceland, because we're an island, we seek influences from abroad. So international football with the Icelandic national team is, has influences like from Sweden, because Lars Lajabek came a few years ago and changed a lot of things. And he, of course, has been influenced a lot in the past from England. He is a 4-4-2 guy. So I think that it's more just international football is... Um, it's, uh, I mean, the earth is flat, as they say. I mean, because of transportation and, and information and everything travels really fast now. So I think that, yes, we come from Scandinavia, both of us, but, but Mixu has been playing in Scotland, England, France. He's coached in, in Finland, uh, Scotland, Thailand, Latvia. I would say th this is just international football. National teams, it's just international. And so there's... First order of business for him is World Cup qualifiers, and then before the end of the year, you've got the EAFF tournament in South Korea. What are the aims in the relatively short term, like by the end of 2019? I would think that people are not going to be too concerned about the EAF finals right now, because first of all, the draw is going to tell you a lot about your chances of going through the draw on the first of July for the World Cup. And also that time, and the draw is made until the first game in September. You need to scout the team, especially the, maybe the two first teams you're playing. So it's going to be a lot of work going through that. But of course, we're going to we're going to go through the first round. That's the aim. This team is experienced. We have talked about aids, but but it's also good to have experience. Uh, so it's, that is exactly what's happened with the Icelandic national team. They were players who've been playing together for a long, long time. Of course, now at this moment, they're declining because they, the team is getting too old and, and many of the players have peaked. So they're starting to get injured and, and, and it's changing a bit. The Hong Kong team has a lot of experience, but I, I would say the, the biggest weakness is that the players are not playing at a high level. So not many of them are playing abroad. We need to get the best players in Hong Kong to play in China, to play in Europe, to play in Japan or, or in, 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 in stronger leagues. That is the biggest connection, if you can say, to success. At what level are the players playing? Because the numbers I have from the fitness coach and the national team show that it is a big step going from the Hong Kong Premier League and playing for the national team based on sprints, running distance and so on. Of course, as we know, the, the league now has been fun. Even four or five good teams in the league, you still don't have no idea who's going to win it. 
but it's just a numbers game. Uh, every game in the Hong Kong Premier League has a number. I mean, you can go to a computer system and see, okay, this was the speed of the game, this was the level of the game, and then you can compare it to other leagues. I think we should it would be good for us to prepare our numbers to the Chinese Super League because I think many of the players would like to play there. I mean, if we, if we take politics away, I mean, who wouldn't like to play in the Super League in China and get a bunch of, a bunch of money and, and train at, uh, with better players at a higher level? So I think this is something we, we have to change. And that's why it's very important for us that we have good level in the Premier League here. Of course, now we had RNF. We can moan about their, their it's not a Hong Kong team, but they have uh, helped us with the level in the league. It's a good team. So I think that if we can't move the players from Hong Kong to a better league, we need to get better foreigners in. That's one of the key reasons Kitsi have been good in the past. They've They've, they've had really good foreigners. We can say that about Taipo this year. They have really good foreigners who have uh, helped the local players to get to be better. So these are the tools we have. And so I think we, people are always spending too much time on the coach itself and the national team. But if you don't have the tools, the tempo in the league, but the players are playing, of course you need money because you have to spend money to to su succeed by playing more games or going to more camps or whatever. It's still a factor in the national team money. But key factor is at what level the players are playing. And, and I think now we're at a time also that we have to bring younger players into the Premier League. And when I'm talking about young players, I'm talking about players from the age of 17 to 19, not 22 to 25. Because one of the biggest changes in football now is that if the players are good enough at the age of 17 or 18 they're gonna play I mean uh, some of some of the academies in Europe are just really good so they they prepare the players really well and they're ready earlier than than let's say 10 or 15 years ago yeah and that's so true I mean we the young players in the Hong Kong Premier League are 22 yeah they, they have a saying in England now 18 is the new 23 <laughs> yeah. so so it says it all and this is of course this is a global problem one of the reasons is, is of course the players are playing longer so the goalkeeper can play until he's 40 years old. The centre-halves can play like 35, 38 at a reasonably high level. It's more difficult for strikers. Uh, they, they have a burnout the earliest. But uh, anyway, we need to get these players in. The Hong Kong League is not a development league. What I mean is that uh, a player doesn't go in there when he's 17 into a big window and the foreign club see him and buy him. And that's also some, something we need to need to do most of the players in the league are happy where they are you know they're like 28 29 30 years old and that they're not going anywhere if you put a 17 year old into the league playing he will go somewhere he will get noticed it just happens in every country in the world but we're not doing that so and it's difficult to tell people to do something of course because uh the best clubs in the league, I would say the best five clubs in the Hong Kong Premier League all want to win the league. And they know that young players make more mistakes. However, when you have, let's say, a goalkeeper who is 37 and centre-halves who are 35 and 33 and a right-back who is 37, you can put a 17-year-old guy into the left-back position or right-back position because the older players will mentor him. So he will improve a lot quickly. So the good thing of having experienced players is that they can teach younger players. And this is called, we've seen that in Southern, 
with with sets. He's been helping some of the younger players. In Taipo, reasonably young defenders playing with Eduardo. So we can't forget this way of improving players. It's not only the coaches. The, the, the experienced players can also do that. And is there anything to do with the league specifically? Like you, you've mentioned one way of improving the level would be for players to go abroad and then another would be for people to come from abroad who have a higher quality mm-hmm. and join the league. Is there some, anything internal within the league which is lowering standards that you, you see? I think that it's emotional attachment and that is connected to the player's pathway. When you're a five-year-old kid, you should go to a football club, you should buy the shirt of the, of the club, and you should know the players in the first team, the senior team. So when you go to Taipo, you start training when you're five years old, you should see the way. And you have this in certain clubs, you have the infrastructure in certain clubs that you can see the pathway from youth to the senior team. One club, one family, as they say. It's, I mean, England is a good example with Liverpool. Many of the players uh, are coming through the academy, although it's really difficult to get into the Liverpool team. You still have players coming through the system. Same with Man United. Man United have a great success in, in bringing through players. And this is something that connects, of course, to the short-term goals we have in Hong Kong because they are, the contracts are, most of them are for one year with the players and the coaches. So there's a lot of changes. So this is something I would like to see in the future, more of a connection uh, that the clubs think of when a four-year-old or five-year-old starts playing football in the club, that they think of it more as a marketing value because the, that kid is bringing his parents and his grandparents probably to the club also. And that has, of course, domino effect of a fan base. So you can see which clubs have a fan base. It's, it's Kitsi as a fan base, really good infrastructure. And then you have the district teams who have, you know, there's more soul in the clubs. So I think emotional attachment is something that somebody who has more knowledge of marketing and things that should think about, in my opinion. And that short-termism that you're talking about, you know, the contracts that run for a year, clubs generally aren't thinking it appears much further than the end of the season. It sounds to me that like that could be unfixable. Like, how, how, how do you change that? Because that seems to be a roadblock, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is. I mean, this is, this is the culture in Asia. I mean, uh, I, I myself have a trial period in, in my contract for three months. And I've never heard about that because... So I was a bit offended when I, I was offered the contract and I thought, I've been working for 20 years in the FA of Iceland. Do I need to prove myself? <laughs> you know? So you get a bit, but this is just the culture. It's not this, the other way around. They would think, I'm not going to give you a two years contract without you proving yourself. Hmm. Of course, this is something that we need to discuss with the clubs. So as we know, there has been a, a huge gap between the FA and the clubs in Hong Kong. So this is something we need to change. We need to sit down with the clubs. The clubs should steer a bit more how we do things in Hong Kong football because the clubs produce the players that should be doing that. But I think that now we're in a, on crossroads that this will change. I, 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 I sense it that there will be a, a more of a communication and cooperation between the FA and the clubs. How we do this, I don't know the solutions, but I think this is something we need to discuss because it's just common sense. If you have short contracts you have more stress people will not be comfortable in the job and it doesn't matter if the football player is the coach or 
or, or the board members or whatever, if you're always changing people, you will lose a lot of information. Uh, the good thing about Iceland, if we take youth team football, we have two age groups playing together. So you have the under 14s with the boys who are 13 and 12. And when you sign a coach, you often give him two years because he has then trained the older year in that group in the under 14s. Then they move up and then he has two years with the, with the younger group. So our philosophy there is, okay, you know more after one year of coaching with this age group, you will do a better job in the second year. And it's just common sense. I, I think that uh, you lose a lot of information and experience by, by having these one-year contracts. But I understand it completely. Uh, the clubs don't have a lot of money. And as you know, we had Hoy King coming up. They were number nine in the, in the first division coming up to the Premier League. So it's not a queue of uh, clubs wanting to come up to the Premier League because there's a lot, it costs a lot of money. And also we have this system in Hong Kong, there's a owner, there's this one guy, of course. So people are a lot reliant on that one guy. And that guy is probably, uh, his, his job is probably in finance. He, he, so you need to be checking out the market even. To, to see if this owner is going to support you the next year after. So this is not good for football development to be changing people at the top. It doesn't matter if it's board members, owners, coaches or, or academy manager or whatever. The first thing we need to do is discuss this and, and then uh, try to find solutions to that. It's funny, you mentioned information in a club that they lose. Could you maybe explain that concept a little bit? I mean, this, if we just start with it, it doesn't matter what, what uh, age group it is, senior team or under 10. I mean, if you are changed, let's say you change all the coaches in 2019. So in 2020, you'll change, there'll be a total new group of coaches. If we have no idea if that information from the year before is passed on to the next coach. This is something that's just really important. I mean, it'll be information about the player's technique, his mentality, his background, and so, so, so on. And because we don't have maybe many academy managers who are helping with the infrastructure in the clubs, this information will go out the window. So a new coach comes in and he will start doing the same mistakes coaching the player as the coach before did. But if the, the coach who had had the player the year before had passed on the information, he would have read it and said, oh, okay, I'm, I'm. he likes to be paddled. You can't shout at him or whatever. So, so he will take that information and, and use that from the beginning. So, so many small details that'll help if you, if you have this continu continuity in, in, in the coaching staff. And, and this is actually the funny thing. The biggest reason for Iceland's success, if you take only the men's national team, because everybody's talking about that team, is because we don't have a lot of problems. You would look at, we had Holland in our group. The, the players were fighting inside the group, they sacked the coach. We had Finland, they sacked the coach inside that tournament. We had Turkey, players didn't want to play for the team. The coach uh, had a fight in a restaurant with somebody and was, he was sacked. So it's ongoing. Now we have Albania in our group, lost the first game, coach sacked. <laughs> so we had stability for six or seven or eight years in the, in the players and in the coaching staff. To be fair, we Iceland shouldn't be able to beat Holland two times in the European qualifier. It shouldn't be possible. So it was because we did well and also because Holland had a lot of problems. So that's the thing that people forget. You will see players who are at the peak of their careers, 27, 28 years, who announce 
stop playing for the national team because I'm concentrating on my club career, my family, or you are trying to get the last deal, you know, big money deal. So I think that people forget that uh, it's interesting with Qatar now. So Qatar wins the, the, the Asian Cup. And I think the biggest thing for them now until the World Cup and through the World Cup is to be without problems. Because what's going to happen now? Are the players going to adapt? I mean, now there's going to be pressure, expectations. So, so I would say just keep them out of problems. You know, the the team and and the and the coaching staff and everybody around, then you will be fine. And so, obviously, you were involved in Iceland for such a long time in football with the FA there. What and well, I'm English. Toby's Austrian. Two teams which learned <laughs> the hard way yeah. uh, about the little known at the time might of. Icelandic football back in 2016. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of a lot has been talked about the Icelandic model, uh, and you've mm-hmm. discussed the idea of consistency and stability. Mm-hmm. What else do you think were the factors which built into that? I think the biggest factor is infrastructure. So the players' pathway I spoke about. So when you're four years old, somebody gives you the Man United shirt for Christmas, and you say, "Okay, I want to play football." So you have easy access to a club. Uh, it costs money, but the commune will pay maybe 80, 90 percent of the fee. So that means that it doesn't matter if you're poor or you're rich, you can play football. Uh, the coaches are all educated. You need to be educated. You will not go through the club licensing in the Premier League if you don't have a coach with, with uh, a bat in the under 10s or under 12. So it's connected. We have the system here only connected to AFC. So AFC will demand that Kitsi and Typo before the for the Champions League that they have two or three teams of youth level and educated people. So it's really soft approach. In Iceland it will be from under six to under 19s you have to have this and this and that. So so that brings all the coaches to the coaching courses so they have to do it. So and it doesn't matter in a small town of 500 there will be educated coaches. There's no exceptions. Facilities are really good. So we have uh, a lot of artificial pitches who are underheated. That's about the only thing that's cheap in Iceland is electricity and, 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 and heating. Uh, and we have also a few indoor halls where we can play a lot of games in during the winter. But still we play football in bad weather during the winter with the artificial pitches are maybe good, but you still have that windy conditions or coldness. But we have the indoor halls will help us a lot. And then there is, I would say that the parents they help a lot. We're always talking about how bad parents are, but they are really close to the development of the youth in Iceland. So they will help with refereeing, kid managers, they will be, um, they will be collecting money for trips to the countryside. We have a lot of tournaments where you need these volunteers. I think the volunteer system that's based on the parents helps a lot also. So the infrastructure in general and the system is so good that uh, last year, when once again with my under 15s and my ID development program, I had players coming through on the girls' side, on the boys' side, who had really good quality. I was just thinking, wow, again, a, a good age group. It's like. So the system have started, I, don't, I, I think that like five years ago, I noticed that the system just started to pump out these great players. It wasn't 20 years ago. You have this, of course, in Holland and Germany where the infrastructure in grassroots football is really good also. It's not only elite football in Holland and Germany is good, but 
I was so surprised when I when I just it's like a light bulb. Wow, it's just happening once again. So you have this age group coming up every year, and it's just amazing. So we the under 17 boys went to the finals, for example, a few weeks ago. So they're playing in the European finals. So we're very competitive to the best teams in Europe every year on both the boys and girls side. So I would think that is uh, the coach education. The coaches, the coaches are really willing to learn. So they look for influences from abroad, from Germany, from England, from Japan, just wherever they can get the information. So I'm really curious. And the trends, let's say, of Chelsea start playing three for three, you will have teams doing that in Iceland. No right or wrongs. I'm not. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but it's it's interesting. So 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 we are as an island. We're always trying to take fashion and other things from different countries. Maybe relating to this then and uh, coming to the point how this could help Hong Kong, I especially wanted to ask about these two major myths I think that Icelandic uh, football has helped a little bit to debunk. One of them is that you need the mass, right? What China is now doing, building 20,000 academies, involving millions of people in football and then having the hope that there mm -hmm. are a handful of talents among them. Obviously, Iceland couldn't rely on this kind of mass of people, but uh, found another way to select and find the right people. Uh, the other thing, and I think you already alluded to this, is the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I think what you hear in Hong Kong the most is how uh, little sports grounds are available, how difficult it is uh, to get pitches. I think this is still a kind of a, a main problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and the kind of additional question that I wanted to ask to this is about artificial pitches, mm -hmm. uh, where there has been a lot of discussion around how beneficial they are or how mm -hmm. disadvantageous they are eventually. But the fact is that if you have a grass pitch, right, you, the usage rate is much, much lower than if an artificial pitch, mm -hmm. meaning that if you already have a kind of limited amount of, of pitches, mm -hmm. might it not be better to have more artificial pitches in order to maximize the, the playing time? Yeah, good point. So if we start with the first thing you talked about, the selection. So we're talking about China and, and it's a really interesting to think about. China is doing many of the same mistakes as uh, the US did. So when the US started um, implementing soccer in America, there came a lot of people from abroad and, and, and even locals who have these football schools. And these football schools are pay-to-play system. So for one, you will not get poor kids into that school. So it costs a lot of money to be a soccer player in America. So it's for middle class and upper class to play football there. And they also brought in a lot of foreigners who were supposed to be experts on, on, on football and soccer. Some of them are, some, some, some not. But they still have a problem in America that parents are controlling the system. Uh, there's a lot of pressure of winning at youth level in America because there are many parents coaching. So they have this emotional thing of ha having to win or wanting to win. In China, however, I think that they have brought too many foreigners over there to help them or doing things for them. One example is Schalke, they, and, and no offense to Schalke, it's a really good football club. So they, one of the clubs in the Premier League have brought them over to do their academy. But of course that means that Schalke have their own academy. So this is not their best squad of coaches doing that. You have to think about these things. So the problem is that as with Africa that most of European clubs have failed. They failed in Africa because the only football school basically was succeeded in Africa is there to dreams because they started on the right end. We must give the players education and then think about the football. 
And that is, the result in that is they have sold players uh, for a lot of money and they brought a lot of players through the college system in, in America. So that's success. Others have failed in Africa. Same goes for Asia. I, I get emails every day from clubs wanting to come to Hong Kong to set up a uh, soccer school or football school. And not everybody is doing for the right reason. As for China, of course, with all this uh, population, uh, clubs are wanting to get into China to sell shirts. And you will even put a player on the pits just to sell shirts. I mean, if you're talking about one billion plus people, whatever. So that's the thing. I think that people need to be careful. If you want to bring a foreigner in, he needs to respect the culture in place. And this is the same here. We have many foreigners in the technical department in, in the Hong Kong FA. We have some foreigners in the clubs. Well, we need to mix this together. So one of my aims is actually to develop as many local coaches and local players as possible so they don't need me after five years. So it's an interesting point. And you mentioned the selection. We cannot have an early selection in Hong Kong because we will lose a lot of players. Although we're 7.5 million, we have, to, we have like, let's say, 1 million, 1.5 foreigners that are not going to get into our a national team system. So we're losing a lot of players. If you take Iceland on the other hand, they're not losing anybody because you, you mentioned the word hope. And that's exact, exactly the, the most important word in the philosophy of Icelandic football. Everybody thinks he can make it. So all the players when they're seven or eight years old, they might not be in the best team inside their club. You divide the teams to A, B, C, D or whatever, but they still think they can make it. And they have maybe examples of players who've done that. They've been in Team C or whatever when they were 12 years old, but have made it. So you're taking hope away from a lot of children if you have an early selection when they're six or seven or eight. This is, of course, as we know from, from the UK, with an early selection in the academies. So then we have the artificial turf. And of course, the players who played the games, who are pundits in TV, these are the people always talking about artificial turf. And they are maybe 50, 60 years old, that they hate it. Because you can't smell the grass and you can't smell the memories of Sweet Home Alabama, whatever. But it's actually, it's a really good tool, the artificial tool, because it always has lines. And kids, kids want to be in a square. So if you square them off in a box, you know, with lines, and let's say with the offside, you want to learn to play offside, it's really good to have the penalty area to guide you. When you have these youth teams training on grass pitches, for example, in Iceland, you will not have lines to help you, to, to guide you. And even some of the pitches will be like a triangle. So there's a lot of work also put into that, into the grass pitches. Of course, some of the pitches in Iceland, grass pitches are really good. But if we think about the mass, the youth, the youth is like 90% of all games and all practices in Iceland. They should be doing trainings on artificial turf. It's best for everybody. And this is actually what's happening in Holland and England. It's, that, that's, the, that's the development. Of course, we won't see Real Madrid play on artificial turf. I think never. But uh, uh, northern countries, and I think, as I said earlier, as a practice tool, it's, it's, uh, it's more important than people think to have these lines to help you with the training also. Especially in a place like Hong Kong, where we have typhoons and terrifying rain throughout the summer. You know, if your pitch is going to get destroyed from April to September, yeah. 
it just kind of makes a little bit more sense, I guess. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about your career because I think a lot of people didn't know you before you came here. Maybe mm -hmm. you could tell us about... I wasn't famous before in Hong Kong? Not in Hong Kong, no. <laughs> I, I can't comment for the countries. <laughs> but. Well, I started to coach in 1990 when I was a player. I went to the countryside to play football. First year I took one age group and then the year, two years after that, well, the, I played there for three years. So in year two and three, I became just the head of youth development at that club, really small club. Uh, I had a chairman who believed in me. So I did a lot of mistakes. This was, this was maybe coaching kids from eight, under eight to under 16s. And soon I got a lot of experience. Then I moved to a bigger club. When I started, I stopped playing. I got injured when I was 23 or something and stopped playing. And after I, the, the same day I broke my foot, I decided, okay, I'm gonna go for the coaching. So I did absolutely everything to get where I am today by educating myself. I did PE, the PE degree just for the football part. I did all the, the, the coaching courses. I went every year for a visit abroad to, to learn. I put it in my contract from the beginning that I would get paid by one trip abroad. I started really early to be a Premier League coach. So I think I'm still the youngest one in the Premier League, 26 years old. Uh, what club was that? That was Valor, who is now, again, it was a good club, but Valor is now the best club in Iceland. I would say they won the league the last two years. And then I did two years at a club called Filkir. Uh, in both situations, there was not a lot of money. And uh, the second year at Filkir, I was sacked when I think there was two games left. So we were not going to get relegated. We we're not going to compete for Europe. And that club, nobody wanted to take that club at that time because they needed to rebuild the team. So it was an old team, but they wanted the, the board wanted to bring young players in. So I got that job and I'm really thankful for having that opportunity because they were playing like Ragnar Sigurdsson. You remember that famous tackle on Jamie Warty in the game in the Euros? He was put into the team when he was 18. And uh, I put a lot of young players in, in there, like four or five players from the age of 17 to 20 played big part in those two years. And I'm thinking back, I think, you were, cra you were crazy to do that. It's unbelievable. Uh, when you look at the stats, how young the players were. In, in a team that had been competing. So we came fourth in my first year, but I was sacked. Uh, of course, I did some mistakes there. And after that, because I, it was not a good feeling that second year, I decided, okay, I'm going to go for youth because I was always trying to put the young players in. I was always producing young players, but I was, I was, I was not a good manager at that time. Really poor manager. Why? Uh, I think it's just experience because when you're 26, 27, 28, and you are dealing with players who are 32, some of them are 34 or five. And it made me realize that, okay, let's stick with something you're best at. So, and I always had that belief, okay, uh, because coaches are no different from players. So I always said, okay, I'm going to be the best youth team coach in Iceland. So I concentrated on youth and did club, club football, took a club who was in the third division in Iceland, a club called Stjarnan. If you remember the goal celebration from Iceland a few years ago, they were doing every time they scored a goal, they would do something stupid and it went all over the world. So I got the opportunity just to build a club that had a, it had a base, but it was, it was way behind the best youth clubs in Iceland. And I was the academy manager five years, did some national teams, youth teams also at the same time. And I took that club from third level to top level. And I would say when I left there, we had the best 
youth development in the country with one of the clubs. So we, there were two top clubs in that, that department. Yeah, and then I've been at the FA in, in different roles, under 15 coaches, under 17 coaches, both boys and girls, youth development, head of youth development programs. And uh, then I went to Sweden uh, in 2014 for two years as academy manager of a club called Brommepojkarna. So Brommepojkarna is in Stockholm and it's the biggest club in Europe with 4,000 players. So I was the head of academy, but still I had it, had also, I needed to run also the, or have a look at the big picture of all these players in the club. And I think that prepared me really well for Hong Kong because of just numbers, because it's so different to be dealing with bigger numbers of players and, and coaches and so on. So um, that's what I've been doing. So, so last year in 2018, I had some offers from abroad, but because I was really happy at the Icelandic FA, uh, I just waited for the right one. So, so when Hong Kong, um, I applied for the Hong Kong job for fun. So I had, I was in, in discussion with, a, with a, another club abroad, but then it just, after the interview, it's just, wow, okay, this is something I want to do. So why, what made you feel that way? I think it was just, I was impressed by the questions and I thought that what they needed now was something that I had because of my broad experience, being a boys, girls, national team, club, coach education. So I thought they needed someone who had my experience. So I don't want to go somewhere where you're not needed. I, I was in discussion with another club, but mm, you don't need me. So so I, I think that thing, when I, I decided to come here, I was so eager to come here. And I felt it from beginning, this is just my home. I'm, 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 I'm not going back to Iceland. Ever? <laughs> I'm gonna die there probably, but not in the future. And so, in the immediate future, you're going to be standing in or acting as assistant coach as well. Was that something that you intended to do as well when you took no, the job? No, absolutely not. So, what happens is that Kenneth Kwok, of, of course, he was one of the guys who applied for the, for the senior team job. He was one of few who didn't have the pro license. And today, if you're going to get a good job based on ranking and everything, because some of the interviews are based on ranking, you need to have the pro license. So he decided to go for the pro license and it, they drive it every FIFA window. But he will be, he will finish the, the license in, in December. So the Chinese, they drive it from Mars to November. It's really hectic. So it's like 65 days or something. Uh, in Europe, you do that in two years. So he will not be available in any FIFA window. So uh, Mixu asked for me because he wanted someone who is working inside the FA. And after I spoke to Paul uh, and, and, and got the confirmation, I could do it and, and, and uh, without out any pressure of, of being away, of course, and all that. And I decided to say yes. So, so but there's something I just want to do until Kenneth comes back. And it's interesting, I suppose, that you mentioned that there are so many coaches who don't have that kind of license in Hong Kong. Is that something that can be remedied? Well, now we have to do that in China or somewhere else. The same for Iceland. They, we, in Iceland, they are not able to do the pro license, so the coaches are going all over Europe. I think that we need to aim for that. We need more coaches. And I was actually surprised that we didn't have more Hong Kong coaches applying for the job because we have coaches with a lot of experience in the Premier League and really good coaches. We need to push these coaches we believe in or in the Premier League to go and take the pro license. Best thing would be to do it here, but at the moment we have like two spaces 
uh, in China. And we need to organize that, who we are sending and who we want to fast track a bit in that sense. And yeah, well, we wish you all the best with the rest of 2019 and the rest of your time with the HKFA. Tor Arneson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, guys. That's a place for you.